Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5, Matthew chapter 5. And the guys have some Bibles, so they've come to the front so they can make their way to the back. And if you need a Bible, get their attention as they do. They'll get one of those to you. It's marked at Matthew 5. So you don't have to fumble around to find what we'll be looking at this morning in God's Word. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word. Matthew 5, and today is the last message in Matthew 5. We've been in that chapter for a number of weeks and months, and we will, beginning next week, look at the second of the three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, next week. Eight years ago, in October of 2006, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a 32-year-old man with a rifle entered a one-room Amish schoolhouse, and he shot and killed 10 girls, execution style, and then he turned the weapon on himself. Now, we've had so many school shootings, both before and since, that that one may not have stood out, but for the reaction of the Amish community. One article described it this way. In the midst of their grief over the shocking loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame, They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys at their sides. Instead, they reached out with grace and compassion toward the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, an Amish grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness toward the killer, Charles Charles Roberts. That same day, Amish neighbors visited the Roberts family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. Amish mourners outnumbered the non-Amish at Charles Roberts' funeral. It's ironic that the killer was tormented for nine years by the premature death of his young daughter. He never forgave God for her death. Yet after he cold-bloodedly shot ten innocent Amish schoolgirls, the Amish almost immediately forgave him and showed compassion toward his family. This summer in our series, Where is God When It Hurts?, I told you the story of two Christian young people in their 20s who were engaged to be married in just three weeks, but were shot dead on a beach in Washington State by a killer who's never been found. And I shared with you the fact that God has done amazing things in the aftermath of that tragedy, including bringing to Christ the sheriff who investigated the murders as that sheriff witnessed the incredible testimony of the couple's Christian parents. An article this summer on the 10th anniversary of the killings said this, Lindsay Cutshaw, the young lady who was murdered, grew up in Fresno, Ohio. It has a small post office and a few dozen homes scattered at a distance around some railroad tracks on the edge of Ohio's Amish country, where narrow roads carry horse-drawn carriages and wind past red barns and fields of hay and corn. A man broken by God, who would have it no other way, lives there. Pastor Chris Cutshaw, Lindsay's father. God can use him fully now, the pastor says. On the first Sunday in May, this past May, Cutshaw, 59, and still wiry like the wrestler he was in high school, stood before 217 Fresno Bible Church worshipers, almost the entire congregation, from babes in arms to slow-moving seniors. He no longer carries his slain daughter's well-marked Bible when he preaches, as he did for several years. Not every sermon can spring from the passages she highlighted. 
But Lindsay's name and death, and her fiancé Jason's too, now inhabit the vernacular of the Evangelical Fresno Bible Church. His sermon that day was titled, The Priority of Love. Near its conclusion, Cutshaw said to his rapt parishioners, Did you know that Kathy and I, we pray for the man who killed our kids? He's our enemy, but he's a person in need. Now, you're all sitting there thinking, I could never do that. And I have to tell you that I'm thinking the same thing. But this kind of love is so shocking because it's so unusual. And it's so unusual because it is not natural, it is supernatural. But in the many weeks we've been looking at this most famous of sermons from God the Son Himself, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus has challenged us to a higher standard. And it's this very kind of love that He calls us to when He says in verse 44 of Matthew 5, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's ask God to help us. Father, as always, we need your aid. We need your aid to enlighten our minds, to open our hearts. Lord, we are not capable of what we have just read. We are not capable in ourselves, and only with your aid can we ever hope to do what Jesus has commanded. But we come before you absolutely confident that you can grant what thou dost command. And so we ask you to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has said in verse 20 that your righteousness as a follower of the Lord Jesus must surpass that of the religious leaders who, as we have seen in the weeks prior, had taken the commands of God's law and had restricted those commands and had expanded the permissions of God's law. And as a result, they allowed things that God prohibited. And Jesus corrects their perversion of God's law by saying six times from verses 21 to 43, you have heard it said, or it has been said. And then Jesus corrects the false teaching by saying, but I say to you. And in verse 43, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, we have an outline for you inserted in your program as we do each week, and so I encourage you to get that out so you can follow along as we outline verses 43 to 48 and see what Jesus is telling us together. The first point I have in that outline is this. Jesus is teaching us that Christian love is universal. Christian love is universal. Now, the first part of what the religious leaders had taught and what the people had heard said, love your neighbor. And that is, of course, accurate because it's found in the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament, with the command to, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> so they were accurate when they said, and the people had heard, that you are to love your, your neighbor. But the second part, and hate your enemy, is nowhere found in the Bible. So why did they and how did they come up with that? Well, one way was they restricted the definition of who is our neighbor. They defined neighbor to be only those who were their countrymen, fellow Israelites and Jews. 
So they said you're not to only love your neighbor, you're to only love your neighbor. And you have no obligation to love others outside your own community and race. But Leviticus 19, which is on the screen, and says love your neighbor as yourself, that very same chapter also says this. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native-born. Love him as yourself, for you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Just as an aside, you know, already you should be, as I am, convicted by the lofty standard that the Lord Jesus has set for us to love our enemies. And here he says, love those who are not native-born. Love those who are strangers in your land. Now, I'm not going to wax political because there's a big political debate about immigration today. But I would just say to you, fellow Christians, whatever position you take on that or anything else needs to be informed by what God says in His Word. Jesus corrected their restrictive interpretation of who is my neighbor. As I've already said, they said, our neighbor is my countryman, a fellow Israelite or, or a Jew. He corrected that interpretation with the famous parable of the Good Samaritan. You all remember that in Luke chapter 10. We're not going to turn there, but I just encourage you to perhaps jot that down and look at that parable sometime this afternoon perhaps. But I remind you that Jesus gave that parable to correct this very narrow thinking that they had about who is my neighbor and therefore I only have to love these people and then they've added, I can hate everyone else. And Jesus said it was a despised and hated non-neighbor, a Samaritan, who the Jews hated because they were half-breed Jews, who was actually commended by God because he was the one who helped the one who had been robbed and left for dead. So one way they justified saying you're only to love your neighbor and you're free to hate your enemy was to take the command to love neighbor out of context and narrow the scope of love to your own people. Another way they justified the hate your enemy addition was to point to the fact that God had many times commanded Israel to obliterate its enemies. And if you do a cursory reading through the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, you'll find a number of passages like Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Well, how do we harmonize this? Israel's to show no mercy to the Canaanites. <clears throat> well, John Stott, I think, has, has said it well, and I want to quote what he says about why it is that God gave that command to show no mercy to these people, the, the Canaanites. Stott says this, The Canaanites are known from modern Near Eastern studies to have been utterly corrupt in religion and culture. So nauseating were their abominable practices that the land itself is described as having, quote, vomited them out. Indeed, if Israel were to follow their customs, she would share their fate. And so what God had told them to do was in reaction to what God had already concluded about the Canaanites, namely, that they will not follow me, they will not come to me, and as a result of that, they need to be they need to be eliminated. God tells the Israelites to do that very thing. The people God 
commanded Israel to war with are those who were given over to their sins. So God has made a determination that they will not repent, and based on that, it's best for Israel and for others that those people be removed. Now, that raises a question for us then. Okay, God did that in the Old Testament. And God said, this is the story with those people, and then this is how you need to deal with those people. But how does that relate to me? How does that relate to you? How can we know when someone is in that category? How can we know that someone is in the category that they are not going to turn around, they are not going to repent, and in fact, they're going to continue to do more harm? The truth is, you can't. The only way you can know that is the way that they knew it in the Old Testament, namely, God had to tell them. The only way we know someone will not repent is in the unusual event that God says so. And that's implied in the fact that he tells them to wipe them out. Or you can read in your Bible at the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, at the judgment. God has concluded these people are not going to repent, and therefore God himself destroys them. So God, in effect, says these people are recalcitrant. They will not turn around. But we cannot make that determination. We must always have hope for the individual. Without God giving us special revelation that this person will not come to faith and will not repent, we do not know. And so our response to that person is to show them patience. We have an example of that in the life of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul, as many of you know. And he was miraculously converted by by God, and he repented of his murderous ways and anti-God ways. And Paul says of his own testimony in 1 Timothy 1 this, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Notice that, that phrase, his unlimited patience. And so Christ Jesus showed his unlimited patience to to Paul, knowing that he would one day come to him. And we don't know that the people that we're dealing with will not come to him, and therefore we are required to show that patience. But God warns. Those who are outside of him and those who are anti-Christ, he warns in Romans chapter 2, saying, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. So one justification that the religious leaders sought to use for hating your enemy was that God said, obliterate some of your enemies. But the reason God did that is because God knew they're not going to turn around. So I'm executing judgment on them now, and I'm using you, Israelites, as the means of that judgment. We don't have the ability to make that determination. Another justification the religious teachers would use for hating your enemy was that some of the Psalms in the book called Psalms in the first part of your Bible, some of those pronounce curses on the enemies of God. These particular Psalms are called imprecatory Psalms. An imprecation is is a curse upon someone else. It's a prayer of a curse upon someone else. And again, John Stott is helpful in his comments about the imprecatory psalms. He says this, As for the imprecatory psalms, in them the psalmist speaks not with any personal animosity, but as a representative of God's chosen people, Israel. And he regards the wicked as enemies of God, counts them his own enemies only because he's completely identified himself with the cause of God 
and hates them because he loves God and is so confident that this hatred is perfect hatred. He's so confident of that that he calls upon God in the next breath to search him and know his heart, to try him and know his thoughts in order to see if there's any wickedness in him. So Stott says there is such a thing as perfect hatred. Just as there is such a thing as we saw several weeks ago, righteous anger. But hear this, it is hatred for God's enemies, not our own enemies. It's entirely free of all spite and rancor and vindictiveness and is fired only by love for God's honor and glory. And so they tried to use these as reasons that it was okay then for us to hate our enemies, and none of those reasons will fly. Christian love, says Jesus, is universal. It's not restricted to neighbor or race or nationality. And secondly, in your outline, it's not only universal, Christian love is improbable. Improbable. Verse 44, Jesus says, But I tell you, in verse 43, you have heard it said, Love your enemy and uh, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But verse 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, as Jesus gives these requirements, you've heard it said, but let me correct what you have heard said and has been perverted by the religious leaders. As he does this, what Jesus says becomes progressively more difficult for us to obey. In verses 27 to 32 of Matthew 5, he says you are to show love by shunning lust and divorce. You show love for your spouse by shunning lust and divorcing. In verses 33 to 37, he says you show love by respecting your neighbors by telling the truth and only the truth. In verses 38 to 42, Jesus urges mercy, not vengeance, toward those who harm. And now in verses 43 to 47, he mandates love for enemies. Now, when Jesus says, love your enemies, this is not a repeat of the previous point that we, we saw last week, where Jesus says to turn the other cheek, and Jesus says to go the, the extra mile. Because others can harm us by accident, by ignorance, or even neglect. But hear this, an enemy that Jesus mentions in verse 44 harms you with malice, hoping to wound you. And Jesus says, love your enemy. He's your personal enemy. He doesn't like you, and he's got it in for you. He's personally seeking your harm. Love your enemies, at the time Jesus is speaking this, would certainly have meant to love the despised Romans who were occupying Palestine in in Jesus' day. And so I stop here and I ask you, as I ask myself to consider this, friends, who are your Romans, who are your enemies, your personal enemies today? And I could say for many of us living in post-9-11 America that certainly we would think of Islamists and jihadists as our enemies, and Jesus is calling us to love our enemies and to pray for them. And who are your personal enemies? That's on a national level. Someone in your family? You say, really, in in a family you could have that kind of animosity? Are are you kidding me? (laughs) Yikes. I heard a joke this week that said, uh, you know, marriage is like a, a card game. You start out with two hearts and a diamond. 
And by the end, all you want is a, a club and a spade. <laughs> now, all of you who laughed, I want to see you for counseling. <laughs> Unfortunately, my wife laughed at, at that. It was... <laughs> but really, who are your personal enemies? It may be someone in your, your family. It may, it may be your spouse. It may be a coworker. It may be young people, a kid at school. And Jesus is saying that even in the midst of their desire to harm you and to harm you personally, you still want what is best for the offender. And as you begin and continue to practice this desire for their best interest, then you begin to feel compassion for them. We often define love as simply what we do for someone else. And in Scripture, it is primarily that. It is not first a feeling. It is first an act of the will that feelings follow from. But we are to seek to have proper feeling toward people as well. How do I know this? 1 Corinthians 13, what is called the love chapter, says this, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, many of us would define that as love, giving all of that all of that stuff. But if I do all of that, I can still not have love. That is, I can still not have affection toward those that are seeking to to harm me. Kent Hughes, I think, gives a helpful illustration of how this love for enemies is to work. He says this, the best illustration I know of to explain what Jesus is talking about comes from the life of one of my wife's dearest friends. She and her family had just returned from the mission field and had rented a rather nice townhouse. At least it was very nice compared to what they had on the mission field. She's a very creative person, did a wonderful job of decorating the place, and they settled in. Only one thing was wrong, the family who moved in next door. They turned the front of their yard into a desert. They broke the windows out of their house. They were always using foul language. They urinated in the front yard, and they generally caused havoc in the neighborhood. The final straw was when one of the boys climbed into our friend's yard and threw a whole can of orange paint over the patio walls. My wife's friend was really angry. She did not like her neighbors. She was not happy with the Lord for putting her where he had put her. Realizing that her heart was not right, she got down on her knees and said, Lord, you know that I do not like these people at all. God, help me to love them. She did not feel any different, but she resolved to exercise love. She baked her neighbors a pie and took it to them, thus beginning a caring relationship. Those neighbors did not change, but she did. She had begun to love them. When those neighbors moved away, she wept. What an example of intelligent, volitional love that says, I will love by the grace of Christ within me. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, the rule for all of us, is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as you do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Love when you don't feel like it. And when it's someone who has done harm and is seeking to do harm, this is supernatural love that we engage in for the sake of Christ and for the glory of our God. 
And Jesus himself did this very thing. You all remember when he was cruelly punished upon the cross by his enemies. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And can you picture the scene with many people around, with the soldiers who've been involved in the act of crucifixion, And Jesus from the cross speaks and he says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Now, what's happening here, now hear this, is Christ is isolating himself under the judgment of God. Now, if ever in human history the judgment of God must fall, it's got to happen now. But at that point on the cross, Jesus calls out, in effect, let the judgment of God fall on me. Do not let it strike them. Let it fall as it must, but let it fall on me. Father, forgive them. Let me be the sacrifice that's consumed. Let me be the point on earth for the lightning rod of your judgment that must fall now. Father, forgive them. And you see this kind of prayer, this kind of substituting yourself for someone else who deserves punishment a number of times in Scripture. Moses did it. He was willing to give himself. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, I would prefer that I myself be damned so that my countrymen, my Israelites, might be saved. And Jesus says, these are, these are enemies. They, they hate me, but let your judgment fall upon me so that they might come to you. Christian love is universal. And Christian love is improbable. But thirdly, in your outline, Christian love is reflective. 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 Now, why do I use that word? Verse 45 that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And I use that word reflective to say that when we love in this way, we are loving as God loves, we are showing that we are children of the Father. We reflect His character. In fact, I say that in your outline. When we love this way, it displays God's character. And we're called to do that very thing, very explicitly in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what the Bible says. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, if doing this is imitating, is imitating God then follow with me, friends, then failing to do this is what? Is failing to imitate God, failing to show that, in fact, we are the children of God. So Christ is calling us to love, but He is is raising the bar, and He is saying, you love this way because you belong to me, because you are in my family, because this reflects the character of the Father that you profess. It displays God's character. And I say in your outline as well, it displays God's care. Displays his character and it displays his care because the second part of verse 45 says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is saying God is good to all he has made. And even those who are outside the family of God, God knows whether they're going to come into that family. You do not, but God is, God is good to them. And he's, in saying that, he's repeating what the psalmist said in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. So Christian love is universal and improbable, and it reflects the character and care of our God. And I say in your outline, Christian love is distinctive. Christian love is distinctive. 
And it's distinctive in a couple of ways. It's distinctive in that it is not selfish. It is not selfish. Verse 46, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? (laughs) So here Jesus says, okay, if all you do is show love in the way those guys do, those guys being the tax collectors, then you are not in any way showing anything distinctive about your relationship with God. Now, why does he single out the tax collectors? Because, as many of you know, the tax collectors were greatly despised and hated, and for good reason. The tax collectors had what one is called a tax farming system, in which they were required to get a quota. And so the Roman government would give a tax collector in a particular area a quota. You're to collect this much money, and they didn't care how you collected it. And so this person who was in charge would then have people under him who would have people under them, and they would farm out into the cities, and they would each collect as much, collect, extort as much as they could. And as a result, the residents hated and despised them. I mean, just think about how much you hate being pulled over by a police officer. Not that I've ever been pulled over, but I've been told about people who've been pulled over. And okay, I've been pulled over. And I hate being pulled over at any time, and and I hate the thought that has gone through my mind more than once when I've been pulled over, that this guy's just pulling me over because he has to meet his what? His quota. Now, the truth is, I don't know. I should have asked one of our police officer friends, do you guys really have quotas? Is there such a thing? But maybe they do, but I've been told that, and I'm mad that I got pulled over, and I'm mad that you're pulling me over, and if it's just for you to meet your stupid quota, now I'm really mad, right? And that thought went through my head just a few weeks ago. This is just an aside. But I was leaving here on a Wednesday night. And I uh, locked up and I turned on the alarm and everyone had left. And then I left. And I went out on 4th Street to go south to my home in Flat Rock. And I did what I instinctively do whenever I go south on Flat Rock or 4th Street. I turn around. I kind of crane my neck and I look back at the building. I don't know why I do that, but but I do. And when I did, I saw uh, at least one vehicle in the parking lot with its lights on, and it looked like it was very close to our door. And I thought, you know, everybody left. There's somebody behind our building. And so I whipped around, you know, the islands on, uh, the, on Fort Street. I whipped around really fast, and then I came around. And I had to whip around again, but as I was starting to whip around again so I could come down Benson, lights started flashing. And I'm in a hurry to go catch these people in the act. And now this cop has me, and he comes and says, look, I say, I'm the pastor of the church. We're in what used to be the Taylor Elementary School, and there's some people behind our building, and I'm trying to hurry to get over there, and that's why I did that, and he doesn't care. <laughs> and he takes my stuff, and that takes like 15 minutes, and then he, he comes back, and he says, okay, pastor, I'm going to let you slide, but, you know, obey the stop signs from now on. And I say, thank you, I will, but if you don't mind, follow me over. And he did, and so we pulled gingerly into the parking lot, and when I come around the back of the parking lot, There I find uh, Cher and Joy Elwood and Melissa Muscat. (laughs) And I said to the police officer, I've never seen these people. Please arrest them. (laughs) All right. Well, all the while, while he was doing his running my stuff through the system, I'm thinking, he's trying to get us, is he trying to get the quota? Now think about if someone was making that quota off the backs of the people in a cruel way, 
which is what the tax collectors in the Roman system did. And Jesus says, if you only love the people who love you, you're no better than them. It's not selfish. It is not just about the people who love me and my group. And in fact, secondly, in verse 47, Jesus teaches us this love that's distinctive is not restricted. It's not selfish and it's not restricted. Verse 47, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Now, you can start to see some direct application of this for us, can you not? I mean, if you only greet your own people. Now, let's be honest. How many of us already today have greeted only our own people? How many of us, when we are finished here in a few minutes, and we have our refreshment time, our cafe community time, how many of us are in the habit of greeting only our own people? And dear friends, it's a constant battle for us, isn't it? It's a constant battle for me personally, for you personally, to move outside of your circle and to move into the circle of someone else. But the pagans, unsaved people, that's what Jesus is saying, people who don't have no relationship with God, they are happy to see their friends and they'll greet their friends, but it's God's character to greet the outsider, somebody who's a guest, somebody you don't know. Almost every church thinks that it's friendly. Almost every church thinks that. How do I know this? I've read what church consultants, believe it or not, there are such things. And they go to churches and they try to help churches figure out what's wrong with them. And one of the things they first ask is, they say, so what are your strengths? And invariably, each church says, we're friendly. And then the consultant, and I've read several of them say this, that they'll go to their church on a Sunday and they'll just kind of hang out in the hallway and nobody comes and talks to them. And then when he meets with the leadership and he says, look, you told me one of your strengths is you're friendly. I stood out there and nobody came and talked to me. They're shocked by that. The reason they think they're friendly, hear this, is because they're friendly to each other. So they are friendly to each other. Frederick Beekner said it this way. To lo- to, the love for equals is a human thing. A friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely, this is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. That is God's love, and it overcomes the world. Christian love is universal and improbable and reflective and distinctive. And lastly, Christian love is impossible. Perhaps you've gathered that already. Christian love is impossible. If you've been following, as we over these many weeks have gone throughout chapter 5, especially as Jesus gets to our ethical behavior and what, it, what we are to act like beginning in verse 21, then you've been thinking to yourself, this is beyond my ability. And if you've been thinking that, you're right. 
And Jesus confirms that it's beyond us when He says in verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This reminds us that we cannot attain God's standard, and therefore we desperately need the good news of the gospel that Jesus has succeeded where we have failed and continue to fail. When we appreciate the extent of God's requirements, we realize how pitiful our own moral achievements really are. And that in turn should lead us to the cross to plead for mercy and there to find it. There we ask God, who is the standard, to forgive us for breaking the standard by failing to be like Him, and He grants that forgiveness. Someone has put it this way, God offers hope for success, though, not just mercy for failure. Verse 48, to be perfect, is a command. Yet Jesus states it in a way that gives us hope. The command to be perfect in Greek, and you know your New Testament was originally written in Greek, is what's called a future indicative. It could be translated this way, you shall be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And in both Greek and in English, the future is used both to predict, saying something like, it will rain, but the future is also used to command, you will attend this meeting. And Jesus is giving instruction regarding behavior, so this is certainly a command. You are to be perfect, but it also points to the future. It predicts that we will be perfect. You can read, be perfect as you shall be perfect. And therefore, as a promise that we will indeed become what we're commanded to be. Thanks be to God. What we are now in our position before God because of the Lord Jesus Christ we will one, be, one day be in our experience as well. And another thing about the Greek in this verse, it says literally in verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect. And the you is explicitly stated in Greek and is emphasized by being at the front of the sentence. So Jesus is not speaking to people in general, but rather to his disciples, to his followers, to those who profess him as Savior. He tells us to be perfect because we're in God's family, and so He is our Father. And the phrase, your heavenly Father, makes two points as we conclude. That He is in heaven, which puts Him above us. But He is our heavenly Father, which puts Him near us. The standard is high, but not completely out of reach. If we read Matthew 5, as we've gone through it these many weeks, as a set of moral standards, it's unattainable. But it also paints a portrait of what kingdom life under the King, the Lord Jesus, is like. It paints a portrait of life in the family of God, and that is the life that disciples experience even now in some measure. And so Jesus says to aspire to be like our Father. In the physical realm, it's natural for a child to be like his father, and it's also logical in the spiritual family, for God, our Father, is remaking us into his image. He's loved us his followers, his children, with an everlasting love. And the love he shows to us is the love he commands from us. And that's why 1 John 4.19 says this, we love because he first loved us. Friends, that's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, in order for you to do that, you have to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And I'll tell you how that can begin for you in this moment, in this hour. But I have at the bottom of your outline your take-home truth. Christians love all people because God has loved us.
Now, how can you begin a relationship with God? You have to realize that you have not loved as God has loved. Realize then that you are a sinner. But recognize that God has come in Himself. God the Son has come to earth as man to be the solution for your sin. He died the death that you deserve on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sin so you don't have to pay that penalty. And He lived the life that you were supposed to live, perfectly obeying God's law. And then you repent of your sin. You say, God, I've been going my way. I now want to go your way. You receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He promises to give you His Spirit and to begin changing you from the inside out. So that now what was impossible to you and perhaps even foolish to you to love your enemies is something that you desire to do and something you desire to emulate because you're a child of the Father. When we bow and pray in just a moment, I encourage you, if you came into this room without a relationship with God, you can begin that relationship now by realizing you're a sinner, recognizing who Christ is and what He did, repenting and receiving Him by praying from your, in your own words, from your heart to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe He's my God and Savior, and I want to follow Him with my life. I ask You to forgive me. And the Bible says, He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank You for the high standards of the Word of God. We thank You for the truth of the Word of God and the fact that it convicts us because of our remaining and dwelling sin. Even those of us who have a relationship with You, oh Lord, we struggle mightily. We thank You, Lord, that You do not leave us to wander, but rather You you bring us back by the conviction of Your Spirit through Your Word. And so we thank You for this day and the opportunity to look at what You tell us in Scripture about how we're to aspire to be like our Father in heaven. Lord, I pray especially for anyone who came into this room believing that somehow they could attain to heaven, somehow they could spend eternity with you based upon what they do and their own merit, that I'm a pretty good person. Oh, Lord, help them to see the folly of that. And I pray right now that you are showing them that there is no way that they can ascend to heaven. That there is no way that they, by what they do, can bridge the gap between your holiness and their sinfulness. And help them to see that their only hope is the bridge that is the cross. That bridges the infinite gulf that is between us and you because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We ask you to save some then by calling them out of the world now and to yourself. Moving upon their hearts and drawing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will give you the praise and the glory for all that you do in and through us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.